Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me as my co-host this week is Brian O'Rourke, an editor at Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Brian. Hey, Ward. How are you doing today? I'm here at my home attic, as I've been for the last two months. As we were talking before we came on air, it seems like two years. Um, the days are fast, but the months are long, I think is the way to describe it. So you are phoning in or you're on Microsoft Teams here which we're not sponsored by Microsoft Teams, but uh, you're, we're on Microsoft Teams and you're actually in our headquarters on the yard. How are things there? I, yeah, I have treated myself to a rare visit to uh, Naval Institute Central Headquarters. Uh, I snuck over to uh, one of the commissioning ceremonies today for the midshipmen, now ensigns. Uh, they've pinned on. They, they don't actually... Uh, I have date of rank till the 22nd, but a friend of my son's was graduating. His family didn't come down from Michigan for it, so I went over to get a few last pictures for them to uh, send to him. So how does that work? You say they pin it on, but they're like frocked ensigns. Is that what the situation is? He can be addressed. He should be addressed as ensign. Uh, by now, he's pinned his butter bars onto his uniform, but he uh, is still technically... I mean, they do the same thing for ROTC. A friend of mine commissioned at graduation at Tufts, but he was part of the MIT ROTC detachment, and they all had a mass recommissioning on the USS Constitution about two weeks after graduation. And that was when that's his date, official date of rank. So this was the second of what are going to be five yeah. commissioning events. Okay. Yeah. So. We've One talked of about our authors that. from last year is doing it on the 18th, and I might try to sneak over again, although they might recognize me this time. I've got to be careful. <laughs> and we've talked about it before on the show, this unusual circumstance that uh, they're going through. I actually talked to a guy who was on the basketball team, and uh, he was commissioned in the first quintile, and his attitude was really good. I I thought he'd be all bummed out about the fact that, oh, we didn't get the Blue Angels and we didn't get to, or we didn't do it at the stadium and there was no Herndon and my parents aren't here and blah, blah, blah. That's not his attitude at all. He's like, this was really special. We ended where we started. So on I Day, they were, you know, took the oath of office in T Court and now they've ended in T Court. So I was just really heartened by his attitude towards um, what, what they were able to do. So uh, kudos to the soup and the Don for kind of making the best of a bad situation. And, uh, you know, these are unusual times, as, uh, as we all know intimately. Um, so good, good for you to, to try to get over there, and uh, maybe you'll even get through, break through completely the next, next opportunity. But it, uh, uh, thanks for joining us from Beach Hall. It's good to know the building is still standing. How's the construction of the, uh, the conference center going? Did you note that at all on your way in? Yeah, it's no longer a giant pit. There's concrete. There's little bits of uh, metal starting to appear. I mean, it really looks like a building is actually going to be there at some point. Uh, for a long time, it's just been a muddy pit and a lot of noise in the building. So it's nice to see shape taking form. Yeah, that's great. And as we've said to the audience, we anticipate the ribbon cutting January, February of 21. So that, in spite of the uh, challenges of the pandemic, the construction of the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center, which is adjacent to our headquarters on the yard, uh, continues. All right, let's get right to our guest. Joining us this week is our good friend, August Cole, 
August is best known as the co-writer of Ghost Fleet, but I think that's going to change pretty soon because this new effort is uh, a tour de force that's equal or greater than what Ghost Fleet was. The new book is called Burn In. I finished it last night. It is fantastic. August, thanks for joining us here on the Proceedings Podcast. It's great to be back. How's it going? First off, how are you managing uh, in this COVID-19 environment there in deep shelter in uh, uh, the city I love, Marblehead, Massachusetts? Well, I have to say, if you have to be in quarantine, being close to the ocean is not a bad spot, whether it's just being able to clear your mind or you know, get in the water and, 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 uh, and go surfing. So I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say we have it too bad up here. It's a full house, uh, which is, which is, uh, you know, has its own challenges, but also is meant for some pretty great times, uh, with, with my family. So we're, we're hanging in there pretty well. So I think I told you I did the Marblehead to Halifax race in the summer of 1979. I had just finished my plea at the Naval Academy. I was on a Swan 48 named insurgent. And we spent a number of days before that race in Marblehead and just had a fantastic time. It was really, really cool. It's almost as good as Annapolis. It's the, <laughs> I would call Marblehead the third best sailing town on the East Coast, right? I would say Annapolis, Newport, and Marblehead, probably. I know you probably have your yeah, own opinions on that. Yeah. But at some point, it's like, what are you even comparing, right? Well, August, let's talk about Burnin, but specifically, let's talk about, let's go to 30,000 feet and talk about how it is that you and Peter create how do you write collaboratively because as a novelist i can't imagine writing with somebody else how does that work with a writing partner you are trying to leverage your respective strengths but also ensure that when you're presenting a story as even at one as long as a novel to a reader you really can't tell who wrote what and i think that's an important uh, aspect of any kind of a collaborative fiction project, because you don't want to take someone away from the experience of being immersed in a world that you've created. And for the world that we created in Burn In, unlike the one we built for Ghost Fleet, which was told from the perspective of over a half dozen characters, everybody from PLA generals to Silicon Valley execs to uh, anonymous hackers, Burn In follows Laura Keegan, an FBI counterterrorism agent, as she's hunting for anti-technology terrorist in Washington, D.C. And she's working with a robot partner that's been assigned to her. And so that ability to tell a story that is less of a tour of a future battlefield and more of a journey with one person and this really intricate human-machine relationship imposed a whole different set of challenges on us. But we approached it with a fairly similar process because I think we both felt that the very methodical, well-mapped out, planned approach uh, that we did with Ghost Fleet would serve us well with Burn In. And, you know, here we are, uh, you know, right at this at this point where we're starting to get feedback to the book. And I, th I think it has it has been successful because what we're getting uh, from readers is that they were able to connect with this character. They were able to kind of see the world building and find it credible. Uh, and, and to us, you know, those are really, really important goals when we're, we're trying to tell a different kind of story like Burn In. Well, last time we were on the show, we were talking about the short fiction you'd done in Proceedings. I forget the exact month that that, do you remember the, what month that was where, when that article came out? That is not on the top May, of my head, no. May 2018. I had the great pleasure of being the editor for that. So we were talking about, I was marveling uh, about how you can meld the technology with the human condition uh, and, and how your mind 
isn't really linear or that whatever a status quo is, uh, you're willing to just blow right through it. And this book opens with right from the get go, you're immersed in a world that is at once filled with data fusion and technology, but also the practical human interface, things like traffic jams, things like trying to get past a person who's trying to keep you from going someplace, dealing with coworkers. Our protagonist, Larry Keegan, FBI agent, as you've already said, is dealing with, you know, family issues and professional issues. And there's all the humanity to it. It's not just uh, some sort of a, a tech spreadsheet that's lined up against some loose plot. So we meet Lara Keegan from the get-go. She's in a traffic jam headed for Union Station. And she decides to bail out of the, the car that she's in and actually puts the car on some sort of autopilot. Again, the way that you present technology, it just blows my mind the way that you think. And then she's slipping on these VR glasses. But beyond that, you also show layers of different agencies and bureaucracy. So she's got sort of high-speed VR glasses. The Metro Police have the clunkier ones, right, because their acquisition budget is less, so their glasses aren't as cool, right? And again, this is the way you, you sort of infuse the work with a believable form of science fiction that I just marvel at. One more thing I want to just say from the outset that I thought was a fantastic thing, and I was telling my wife about it, is as people, as people approach each other, their data allows them to know things about the other person. So it'd be like they're the, never, you know, we're wondering in this post-COVID environment, will we ever shake hands again? This kind of data integration would, would make that mood anyway. So as, as Say you and I don't know each other, August, and we, we approach each other. You'd be like, oh, August Cole, you live in Marblehead, Massachusetts, and blah, blah, blah. And you go, hey, Ward, uh, nice to see you. I see that you're 61 years old. And, you know, whatever else would show up in your headset or in your eyeglasses. It's just fantastic stuff. So let's talk about Lara Keegan and the story. With Brennan, we wanted to tell a new kind of story that fused this nonfiction research with the same fast-paced techno thriller that any reader who loves a really uh, kinetic, uh, but also in, uh, you know insightful story would would gravitate towards. And and when you're you're trying to relate this future world, which has all these elements like you you referenced that are familiar but yet amplified or or divergent, it's really about finding a way to show the reader what's deviated from what we think the future is going to be like versus how it might actually be from that character's perspective. And so Laura Keegan is a counterterrorism agent who's uh, served as a Marine, as a robot wrangler, and her experience working with battlefield robots, which are much smaller than maybe how we talk about them today, has given her a very utilitarian approach to technology. And so when she's assigned this robot partner uh, as much out of an almost political move that would be familiar to anyone in Washington, D.C., it is the you know beginning of not only a very, very high stakes case, but a larger struggle that really, I think, ties into this question of America's future with transformational technologies like AI and robotics. At the same time, Laura Keegan is a mother, a wife, and being able to bring the reader into her life, right, not just her case, I think is really important to give an honest accounting of what our what our existence might be like in the 2030s. And there's a lot that I think we describe in the book we don't want to come true, whether it is the 
dominance of gig work, even for highly educated uh, workers, whether it is kind of the economic precariousness that goes with uh, another major downturn, whether it is the extremism that is you know, woven throughout the political environment for kind of tactical political gain. All of that collides together and creates a very combustible situation that, as we show in the book, is very exploitable by, by an adversary, uh, particularly a domestic one. So Lara's husband is doing gig work. And, and so that's a good example, a very personal example to her of a guy who's sort of punching below his weight ca- class to make ends meet. The challenge that we face, and we can see glimpses of this today, is that the use of algorithms to replace the kinds of services work, such as the legal profession like Laura's husband, is only going to accelerate. And it's funny, you know, we surveyed and read a lot of the studies about uh, job replacement or the impact of automation. And the narrative began very much focused on people at the uh, hourly wage work category. It did not often encompass the kind of people who wrote reports like the ones we were reading. But yet, as we look more and more about the truly transformative transformative capabilities of machine learning types of artificial intelligence, you know, fusing disparate amounts of information together, coming up with accurate forecasts, presenting them in compelling narratives, that is just as easily as automated as a delivery service. And so I think that that is something we still have yet to close the gap on in an awareness. And the economic implications, of course, are very real because those are jobs that are critical to a functional middle class in America, but also the social contract, the idea that we will have people who don't expect to be out of work, out of work for no other good reason that their uh, job has been essentially not offshored, right, but automated, is going to create political pressures and economic angst that is certainly going to carry over into all aspects of society. And, And I worry that without a conversation that acknowledges that potential outcome, we won't get to a place today where we can perhaps avoid it. You know, America is already riven with enough political discord right now and, and, and you know, troubling trends that, that tie in, you know, software-driven automation and, and manipulation of narrative that I would hate to see that expand uh, and be exploited by adversaries who are abroad, of course. We're seeing that today with, with China and Russia, but also seeing it uh, become more of a playbook that, that, that our domestic actors start to use, too. August, what's interesting, what I, what's coming through as you talk is you write fiction with intent. Uh, a lot of people sit down, they have an idea, I've got a cool story, let me write the story. I have two abandoned novels on a hard drive at home, but cool stories that ran out of steam. You've given talks, you gave one here at the Naval Academy a couple of years ago. Uh, the, you set up sort of what you think fiction can be. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that thick end concept? Sometimes I think I'm better at writing this stuff than I am describing it, but I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> as, as a writer, you know, you're trying to reach people where they are, but then take them out of their comfort zone. And for me, as somebody who grew up reading science fiction and uh, during the Cold War, you know, William Gibson's early work, for example, uh, Bruce Sterling and others in that cyberpunk genre, I was always really uh, in, you know, taken by how gritty they saw the future. And in my own experience, you know, I worked as a journalist before I turned my back on all that to pursue what I'm doing now. You know, I worked during the dot-com boom in San Francisco. Uh, I worked there after the crash. So I've seen the kind of cycle, for example, that like technological investment goes through and the, the social implications for, for an area like the San, the San Francisco Bay Area. 
So my, my, my appreciation for like technology, not as a discrete uh, act or not as a discrete element, but really a, a, an extension of the human experience, you know, makes me think, well, what are the best ways to, to understand that? You know, when I was a journalist, I got to work at the Wall Street Journal for a couple of years, almost three years. And I wrote about defense and security, defense industry. And what always interested me was what was going to happen next. And, you know, finding the right way to do that, I realized that a newspaper article actually was not the best way to practice foresight. And so my, my inclination, thinking back to the really foundational works that I read during uh, my earlier years, and I'd parked, you know, I'd really put aside when I was working as a quote unquote serious journalist, you know, trying to, to figure out the way the world worked. I, I went back to that because I gave myself permission because I wasn't tethered by what anybody expected of me anymore. You know, when you when you leave a field like journalism too, which has such a, a mantle or, or label that goes with it, um, it kind of allows you a chance to, if you want, uh, start over in a sense intellectually. And so I did that, and that in, in included embra- re-embracing science fiction. So that uh, I went back to and continued to read uh, William Gibson, but also more of Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, you know, since then I've come across uh, writers like Linda Nagata, who writes about the future of war in AI, who I've just been really taken with. Uh, Madeline Ashby is another that's fused together really complex elements in narratives that that are surprising, um, and and that is I think some of the same uh, drive that when you're writing a newspaper story and trying to establish what's new here is is uh, just the same with fiction. So that so the the other you know part of your your question is well what do you call this? And my labeling of it as ficant, which is fiction plus intelligence, is, is a way of describing what, what Pete and I often call useful fiction. It's a form of writing that you know, uses nonfiction research that's rigorous, uh, but it can integrate it with narratives that are hopefully surprising and, and will challenge a lot of the status quo assumptions about what's ahead. And we've you know, found that with Ghost Lead, of course, there was a, a ready uh, audience that, that took to the way we were kind of popping the bubble, if you will, about expectations of, of what China's military rise might, might mean. But also in, in the short stories that, I, that I've worked on too, as many of which have been commissioned, I found that there is an appetite too to try to figure out, particularly this kind of 2030s to late 2030s, uh, early 2030s, late 2030s timeframe, what that means for the future of conflict. And so, you know, doing that, of course, can be done with white papers and PowerPoints, but I feel like a narrative can really bring you as a reader and as an analyst or a planner into that world and help you make better decisions about how to prepare for what's ahead. Again, as, as we've said before, what you do brilliantly is that melding of sort of pop culture phenomenon, societal trends, and you extrapolate where you think technology is going to go. And I think a great example right from the get-go in the book is this veteran camp that's kind of like the bonus army uh, 100 years later, as you say, uh, which is Lara. Is it Lara or L- Laura? How do you pronounce her name? I pronounce it Lara, but I think you could pronounce it Lara too. Okay. I think the author gets gets the, the, the choice there. I'll say, uh, so Laura is, she gets out of the SUV because of the traffic jam and she's headed towards Union Station. She has to go through this, this uh, Patriot, what's it called? Patriot Camp. Uh, what's the name of that uh, little enclave there? With That's that? right. Yeah, so... Um, there's a sort of a, a, a tough dude with an AR-15 and he's got a mohawk and he's sort of a vet bro. Um, and then she sort of calms him down a little bit or he knows because of uh, the technology fusion who kind of that part of her, her profile where she's a Marine Corps veteran. And, and then another female vet comes up and sort of ushers her through the encampment. But it I, I was really struck by it because 
it's a projection of what's going to happen to the veteran community that's believable. I, I believe that that's what could really happen in 10 years from where we are now with veteran advocacy and, and, and well-being and, and benefits. And you describe it so well in terms of, you know, how their payments were subject to legislative oversight, unlike other uh, 401k programs or whatever else. So I thought that element is exactly what draws me in, you know, beyond just the, the well, technology piece. Well, we've actually, we've even seen that encampment with the pipeline encampment in 2016, where uh, North Dakota, where the veterans sort of in, uh, descended on this spot. I mean, it's very much in that community now. It's interesting to see them descend on Washington and demand change. I think that's an yeah, interesting projection. Exactly. And and so also the nuance of their identity and this sort of entitlement piece beyond what maybe is uh, deserved or however you want to put it. You know, we see that uh, out there on social media and uh, these various advocacy groups like IAVA. If you ever go to one of their events, it, it kind of goes over and above. And you're like, so what did you do again? What was it that you did that warrants having a lifetime of not having to earn a, a living from this point forward, right? And so, again, it's just right from the outset, I'm immersed in this world that you create. The other thing I will note, and you just kind of said this with Steve Steampunk, is it's not dystopian because usually the world that is is created in the future has some level of, of let's just call it dystopia, uh, where everything is gray hues and you know, there isn't any vegetables anymore and everybody's uh, sort of not really liking life. There's no spirituality. There's no literature. You know, it's a bunch of skateboarders that deliver pizza and they live by themselves and there's nothing else to do kind of a thing. Right. Um, and I'm thinking of a snow crash, of course. Uh, so that's not the world. That, that's not how you guys do it. And that's what I love about it is and that's what makes it more believable. So is that something you consciously do or is that just where you are? your outlook takes you. I'm glad you brought up the veterans encampment in DC because for ghost fleet fans, there's an Easter egg in there that hopefully you'll pick up. I don't want to spoil it, but uh, it may, uh, it may connect with, with some of the, some of the, the ghost fleet readers uh, out there, but, but that, you know, was a very deliberate choice to have this historically rooted futuristic scene where we are able to draw trend lines from today into you know 15 years out into the future or so and and postulate that the way people play politics today with veterans and veterans benefits the way that economic pressures are are mounting and the way that society views the not only the military but veterans may not stay the same as it is today and i think it's a mistake to believe that the future will be just more like tomorrow right and so being able to do that in a way that again allows us to experience that through um, you know, Laura Keegan's eyes and her you know, experience as a Marine is, of course, critical to not only the story, but to how she, you know, exists in the world as well. And, and it's, it's, I mean, that's a hard part of the book too, because you, when you're starting for the first like 30, 40 pages uh, as a writer, you know, you can't screw that up and you want to make sure you're not putting too much information that's extraneous. Uh, and at the same time, bringing people along with enough, you know, you know, enough action, but, but not just, um, you know, tossing them down a flight of stairs blindfolded, right? Like, you know, you want to make that world feel credible. And so that's what we tried to do by, by, by using elements familiar from today. 
I'm not sure if this question is really about an Easter egg, but the thicket talk that I saw, you started with a quote about good science fiction doesn't predict the automobile, it predicts the traffic jam. And your story actually starts with a traffic jam, but it's not just any traffic jam. I mean, there's really, um, there's not much spoiler here because it's in the first 15, 20 pages, really funny bits about how competitive uh, AI vehicles treat one another on the roads. That Frederick Pohl quote, uh, a good science fiction story should be able to predict not the automobile, but the traffic jam is is a great one uh, for this for this reason, and and I think more so today because traffic is of course a universally you know despised experience. Yeah, what what I wanted, and I think Pete would would agree with me, you know, to do in having the reader you know see that there are these really annoying aspects of life today that are going to be here in the future, whether we uh, automate everything or not, and it might even be actually that automation makes things worse, not better. So no matter what line you're sold by the people that are inventing a new algorithm or a new technology, the reality is traffic's not going away. It just might change. So the the kind of algorithmic you know uh, combat, if you will, that goes on between car share services, et cetera, you know, becomes a way we can explore that. And as a, as a writer, you know, you could talk about that in a book in an expository manner, or you could just show what it's what it's what it what it's actually going to look like or feel like to be in that, and then more so to amp up the stakes when you're rushing to respond to a threat. And you're dealing with this this kind of a traffic jam, um, and and of course being set in D.C., I think Im- imagining a beltway, you know, com- the larger beltway area without traffic is is like probably the most preposterous thing I could have written of all had we done so. <laughs> You've already mentioned that uh, Laura's partner winds up being a robot uh, with the acronym TAMS. Again, I think you do a cool job of her boss introduces this as we need a win, and I just watched the miniseries Waco. And ATF also entered into the Waco situation because they needed a win after the uh, uh, Ruby Ridge situation. Um, so I, I very much related to this idea of the agency needs a win. And so she's given this robot partner uh, with, that's called Tamps. But as you always do, you imagine this relationship in a more three-dimensional way than just human and machine. Talk about some of what you wanted to do with the Tams character. I think just like with writing, we all have individual relationships with with technology. And to think that even an inanimate object can be imbued with emotional you know, energy or attachment is certainly something we've all experienced. Anybody with a boat or a classic car can tell you that. Uh, and the interesting thing about that human machine dynamic is that when you begin to use software that can more closely replicate the actual ways that we communicate, you know, as, as bags of meat with each other and optimize those kinds of conversations, you can really start to develop a relationship in a way that's both artificial and natural at the same time. And yet if somebody has a way of viewing technology where they're like, I'm not falling for it, I think that gives like a really great skeptical perspective, which is probably close to how I a lot of times view tech. You know, I'm not a Luddite per se, but uh, I am someone who's skeptical and, and generally an optimist, but I like to say I stare into the abyss a lot. So, you know, there, there's a way to, to manifest that in a human machine relationship. You know, the hard part is that you've got so many uh, potential tropes or, you know, kind of just cliches you can fall into in, with that human robot dynamic. And I think part of the challenge is coming up with feels with a way that feels authentic 
for the actual story that you're writing and for the actual world you're building, uh, particularly one. And I think this is a relevant you know, aspect to the question of what the U.S. military in the future will be like. Um, you know, that is going to, of course, just as it reflects civilian society, it is going to reflect the uses of automation, uh, whether it's AI or robotic in civilian society. And so part of that gets fused together in this very, um, you know, kind of clear case of, of, you know, hunting down a terrorist in the U.S., but it's wrapped up in some larger issues. And I do hope that the book can help people unpack that human machine relationship just as they read about Laura and Tams. Well, as they develop their relationship, it's not a cliche the way you roll it out. And it starts with sort of what you call a John Henry scenario down at the FBI Academy where they run an obstacle course and they do a hothouse. Um, and uh, she starts to figure out the capabilities, the limitations of TAMS, but also some of what she's going to want to leverage when she actually takes it on a case. Yeah, having having two characters in a, in a story you know, evolve in their relationship is, is critical for, for any kind of a good narrative. And so finding a way to have the Tams, uh, you know, Laura Keegan relationship evolve to became critical to the whole thing being believable. I think really as important as any other world building, you know, in, in the story, because, you know, you want to feel like you're learning more yourself, I think, about not only the technology at hand, you know, which is a, a, a robot that we don't necessarily see in our day-to-day lives today, but we could literally build from the technologies that are, you know, extant, uh, you know, in different corners of, of the tech community. But you want to feel like you're evolving and, and uh, you know, with Laura Keegan in that relationship, and especially again, thinking about a kind of high stakes story, you know, how do you, how do you ensure that that relationship becomes critical to, you know, the way the, the way the book is going to end. And so for us, um, you know, it was really fun to begin to kind of give a, a, a character that was inanimate a sense of life without, again, trying to, you know, fall into the kind of uh, traps that, that exist, you know, technologically speaking. In classic techno-thriller fashion, you have not quite chapters, but uh, episodes that start with the setting, like, uh, you know, it's uh, Georgetown University or whatever. You have one that's called Disruptor Battleground Quadrant 4, The Cloud. And that is really interesting in in terms of the characters who are interacting. Talk about that that particular passage. You know, trying to imagine how, you know, terrorists in the future are going to communicate uh, you know, is both an extension of some of the methods and means that we have today, but we can be sure that, you know, usually using kind of avatars and virtualized uh, worlds, which will be increasingly common in the future for, you know, commerce, for, for, uh, for, for entertainment, those are going to be domains where, you know, bad folks are going to be getting together to, to plot. And so, you know, finding a way to also step back and, consider the threat environment in the 2030s, particularly from a domestic point of view. You know, if we're looking at the larger transformation of society as being far bumpier and rockier than we think about it today in terms of this impact of AI and automation on everything from employment to pop culture and politics, uh, we wanted to be able to understand you know, who would be the adversary, so to speak, in that domestic sense, who would be the threat in the future, and, and where would they find common cause? And today, I think you can look around and see elements uh, in the fight about uh, how the country is going to respond to COVID that show these few weird fusions of people who ordinarily shouldn't be hanging out together, getting angry about stuff. But in fact, because of algorithmic connection, because of um, potential manipulation too, it's starting to happen already. And, you know, pulling forward this future to, you know, 2020 is in many ways for me, one of the more disquieting things I, that I that I keep experiencing every time I look at, you know, what's in my Twitter feed or what's being written about in a 
in a news story, um, you know, many of the elements that we identify as being the kind of world we want to avoid in 20, the 2030s are literally coming true all around us because of how uh, we are responding individually and collectively to the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And so I think, it, if anything, it kind of ups the stakes for how we see not just the value of burn-in, but, but this bigger conversation, whether it's using pervasive you know, contact trace surveillance whether it's using the kinds of robots that that uh, Amazon is deploying in Whole Foods that blast out UV in the off hours, I mean that's literally the kind of thing you'd you'd be reading about in, in in the book. And so my my hope is that by getting people to you know pop their heads up a little bit, step back, and look over the horizon, that they'll be able to understand how the importance of what's happening around them right now. Well, there's a cool scene to that point where Tams actually buys lunch for Laura. Uh, and and this delivery pig uh, brings it, and she's like, "I didn't order this. Um, go away." And you describe it as like a pig with a that has a barrel on it, and you can just imagine this thing like wheeling up to your house, um, with like, "Here's your barbecue," and you're like, "I didn't order this. Go away," and it won't go away. And then Tam says, "Hey, I bought it for you," and so he's starting to get a sense of what she needs based on her biometrics her heart rate, her body temperature, her enzymes. Like, I thought you could use some junk food, right? And, and so that's what we're talking about is potentially where we, go, we cross the line in terms of use of data. This is what we all celebrated Facebook. It's amazing. I can find my old high school classmates and see what they have for dogs and what sports they're playing. And then all of a sudden it's like, and it can also ruin an election potentially and know things, you know, et cetera. So... Again, these sort of details that you infuse into the book, it's just it, this is what makes it a breakout work, in, in my opinion. How did you come up with that idea? You know, we all had those really eerie moments when you see an ad pop up or a search that you swear you didn't type anywhere, but it's like, was my iPhone listening? Yeah. You know, was the mic on in my laptop? And, and you know, that's the you know, kind of supernatural, you know, aspect that we deal with today. But when you look at the way e-commerce is going, the way, you know, advertising is going, you know, the more data that companies have, the more they're going to use it to target. When you look about, look at like the way Internet of Things is going to move further into the biological realm, you're going to see this sort of thing happening uh, all the time, you know, reducing that, uh, that barrier so that people aren't, you know, we talk about click through today and like online advertising and commerce, but that's not that's going to be like antiquated as a concept and it's going to be essentially creating relationships with purveyors or vendors where there is your openness as a consumer to have things delivered to you because the algorithm gets more and more right so to speak uh, the more it tries i mean you could even imagine services offering you stuff for free for a period of time to figure out how and when you like to get let's say a hot coffee delivered or a, the drone burrito like rolls up to your you know, your desk at work after flying across town. Because within, you know, a certain amount of time, the algorithm can predict what, what you want or when. And so if you're then after that 30-day trial, for example, I think I've got a great business here, by the way, you're, you're at a point where people <laughs> would treat that like a subscription service, right? Yeah. And, and maybe the apps compete with one another about who's bringing you lunch that day. And that lowers your cost. Like there's all kinds of crazy stuff you could do. You know? Well, I mean, we have this nightly discussion between me and the wife where we're, we're, we're uh, empty nesters about, okay, what are we doing for dinner? Right. And so um, we have our six places that we like to patronize in a one mile radius, but imagine that there was an algorithm that figured that out for us, right. Based on 
all of these elements of biometrics and time of day and the other things that it can automatically sense. And there's just a ring on the doorbell and here's this drone, to your point, hovering there with a bag of Thai food, uh, exactly what you needed at the time. And so it almost wrestles away from us the need to, to make a choice at some level, right? And so that's at once freeing up, but also a little bit uh, scary. Well, first of all, I could definitely go for a drone burrito right now. So thanks for planning that idea. <laughs> but second, uh, I mean, it, it, what you just described is so dehumanizing in a way, right? I mean, it, it the, the algorithm has robbed me of my agency and said, here's the food you want. But if it is the food you want, has it dehumanized you? It's like having this really cool friend who figures it out before you really even care. I think it's not, I think it's a jump ball as to whether it's dehumanizing in terms of the end user. And I think that's why this is the sort of nuance that, that, uh, that August and Peter infuse into their work, right? Where it's like, oh, I think that would be kind of cool. Everything isn't dystopian. It's not like the machines have taken over uh, necessarily. I think at Vernon, what we tried to do was show that there are big shifts that happen in society about very fundamental questions like agency or free will, like you're talking about. And, you know, whether the carnitas comes to me by me, you know, pushing one button or, or none uh, is is a really interesting manifestation of that. But I can also see that, like, my kids or my kids' kids, you know, could, could you know, in, interpret that as a burden, right? I want to use my energy and my cognitive bandwidth for other stuff. So, you know, this this question of like getting inside the head of a customer has been, you know, at the core of advertising for a long time. You know, it's it's a question that how we talk about the future of conflict, you know, getting in the cognitive, you know, realm or domain or whatever you want to call it. And and it's certainly going to be, you know, a different kind of battleground in in not only the commercial world in the 2030s, but, you know, the political world and other parts of civil society where, you know, reducing through autonomy and 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 algorithms the barriers to action. Uh, so that more can be done for you know profit or advantage is certainly going to be something I think we will see more of. You know, consider all the data being gathered today in terms of how we work and when, whether it's Zoom, whether it's you know Grubhub that has you know far richer customer set data sets than it's ever had. Amazon and, and Whole Foods are sitting on you know, Amazon's a trillion dollar company plus right now, but like the value of the data that they've hoovered up in the last ninety days. You know, it'd be really interesting if you modeled that and were able to create a kind of valuation, you would be able to probably perceive, you know, a forward looking way of understanding how that company is going to perform in the future based on the data they gather, you know, like in a retrospective sense, even in the near term, you know, it's like last quarter or whatever you want to say. Um, that is going to be fundamental. And, and we just don't talk about enough, uh, you know, in core communities in the tech sector, people have, you know, really intense and important conversations about data rights and privacy. But in an everyday sense, we sure don't. And, you know, every time you get Uber Eats or, or take an Uber for that matter, um, you know, you're you're participating in a new kind of economy that we're not yet wholly cognizant of. And, and you know, I've, I've used this phrase, data is the new ammunition, which is a riff on the data is the new oil concept that gets, you know, talked about in the tech world to, to speak to the primacy of it. But, but, but certainly that's true. And I think it's an important way of considering that, you know, this is not just something that is going to be always to our benefit, that data will be elemental to really profound experiences, even like war. And those who have the data have the power and what do they choose to do with it? Right. So Jeff Bezos, what is he going to yeah. do with that, you know, one trillion dollars? I mean, I think in theory he could save every small business in America right now if he chose to. 
um, which would seem to be a very virtuous thing to do. But does that keep the company solvent? Is that okay with shareholders? Um, these are the choices that I think it'll come, it'll be at the feet of a few people who have the lion's share of data. Like you said, that's the new ammunition uh, going forward. Another scene takes place at Ben's Chili Bowl, which is uh, especially uh, encouraging to know that Ben's Chili Bowl will be around at 20, in 2030 and beyond because there's some doubt as we sit here now. I think they're taking a hit with uh, the current COVID-19 environment. I love Ben's Chili Bowl. It's my go-to when I'm doing U Street venues uh, like the Lincoln Theater or 930 Club. Uh, Half Smoke is, uh, is, you call it junk food. I think it's health food. I, I, I'm proof of that. Um, this doesn't just happen, this thing that I carry around with me. Um, and then another thing is they go to a strip club. Tams and Lara go to a strip club, and the person sort of gives them a menu, and among the items is machine on machine, which I thought was, again, the way you have the ability to look at these, the way society would go. Like machine on machine costs more. My mind doesn't work like that. I think it's amazing that you guys uh, tee up these kinds of elements of what will be society in the future. And then the last thing that I wanted to point out without a spoiler is one of Laura's exes sees a write-up about her and then pings her on social media, which we've, we all know about either being the cyber stalker or being cyber stalked. Uh, with one of our exes. So I, I think that was kind of brilliant and relatable how you, you infuse that into the book as well. Yeah, there's there's elements in the story that will be totally familiar, but hopefully they are, you know, used in, in surprising enough ways that the 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 experience of being in Laura Keegan's world allows you to, you know, pause and, and just have that like, whoa moment, but then not so much of a shock that you're putting the book down and being like, this is like, doesn't pass the giggle test. And, and I think, you know, this is like a larger kind of writing question too. And when, when trying to tackle a science fiction type story is, you know, how much tech, how much information do you put in there? And, you know, there's, there's often um, something the way I kind of think about it when I'm writing is like an elastic band, you know, that you're stretching and stretching and obviously you stretch it too far. It's going to snap and break. Um, and, you know, if you, essentially waste someone's time who's invested hours in your book, you know, halfway through, they're going to be so angry uh, and upset. And I think that's one of the cardinal kind of sins you can commit as a writer. Like you, it, you really got to get someone to the end. Right. Um, but you know, the way that, that we can keep that band from getting too taut, you know, is in fact by using like endnotes, you know, the footnotes that can speak to all the elements of those scenes you just described, you know, in the book, allow people to have that confidence that even if they're, reading something that seems like completely bizarre or, or difficult to even kind of comprehend in terms of like, how could people do that? They know that it's in fact something that's either happened or is, you know, on the way to happening because there's an end note that speaks to it. And so, you know, I, I, I too have been tracking the, how Ben's chili bowl is, is doing and I'm, I'm getting worried as well uh, because that's an institution that, that even though I don't live in DC, the DC area anymore, uh, I count as, as important as any of the, uh, the historical landmarks that are, that are part of the public, uh, public works in that town. But, um, but you know, those are the elements too, that, that if you're a DC area resident, like you, you can, you can use as a touch point, you know, it's familiar. And so finding a way to integrate that into the story allows you to take other aspects of the scene that like, like the one that we end up describing there or, or some of the other uh, facets of the book that, that are, that are again, like kind of jaw dropping, um, there's enough familiar stuff going on that you're like, oh yeah, this, this actually could be real. I could, I could put myself in that situation. I could see it. Uh, I know what it smells like. I know what it you know touches or in this case, it tastes like. 
Yeah, the, the pacing part that you're describing between a description of uh, a piece of technology or whatever, that's that's really hard. I, I wrestled with that with the punk series uh, and you sort of overbuild the house and then you sort of take off the non-load bearing parts, um, as my editor Giles Robler used to describe it to me. Um, but you guys found it, right? Because otherwise you just wind up stealing any uh, reward from the reader to kind of, okay, I got it. I figured it out. Just let's keep going with the story, right? Um, and it's very tough with a technology-laced work of fiction. But I will tell you, you guys definitely by this point have found what that meter is like. Um, and that's, that's very much to your credit. Brian, you got uh, anything else before we wrap up here? bit of an announcement, but we have a fiction contest coming up with the Center for International Maritime Security, SIMSEC, that we're co-sponsoring. You and Pete Singer have agreed to be part of the judging panel for that. Details will be forthcoming soon, uh, but I wanted to point it out and say we're really looking forward to having your input into that. Well, I'm looking forward to, to judging those stories and, and being involved. You know, the Naval Institute has been such a great proponent of Ficant, whether it's my own work or, or the work of others, more importantly, and, you know, finding uh, fellow travelers on this on this journey as we, we figure out how to use uh, fiction in the national security realm. Uh, it's it's really heartening to see it, it gaining traction uh, and to be carried to such a high standard like you guys do. So thank you guys for, for not only the, the interest in burning today, but, but for doing projects like that with SimSec. The author is August Cole, our good friend August Cole. The book is Burn In. Congratulations, August, on a, another triumph, a fantastic book. And thanks again for joining us on the podcast today. I really enjoyed speaking with you both. Okay, that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We will see you again next episode. <laughs>